Hello and welcome to another installment of the Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. Today's story stars not one of Malifaux's human or non-human denizens, but rather a single coin as it makes its way through the city's underground economies. In Malifaux, even seemingly inanimate objects can exert their will upon the world, and they are sometimes malevolent. I hope you enjoy A Bad Penny. A Bad Penny by Anthony Hicks The coin was priceless, a 14th century English florin. Isabel Satter held her breath, willing her fingers to stop trembling. May I look at those? She asked, pointing at the display. Ephraim Harvey smiled paternally and fished out the tray from beneath the glass. Not a lot of folks recognise those, miss he said in a wheezing rasp. Isabel feigned curiosity. Oh, are they special? The shopkeeper set the tray down in front of her, his frail arms barely up to the task. Why, yes, miss, he said. The coins on this tray are all from the old countries, from before the breach. Very rare, very valuable. His eyes met hers briefly, and she saw something in them, a hint of avarice, perhaps. She shrugged elegantly, placed her hands on either side of the tray, and leaned forward, exposing a tiny triangle of smooth flesh at her collar. Ephraim swallowed and blinked. May I examine them? The shopkeeper nodded through nervous breaths. Of course, miss. His eyes met hers again although I do ask you be very careful with them. They are quite valuable. Isabel picked over the coins, her hands drifting from one to the next. She turned them over, tracing the edges with her fingertips. She plucked the florin from its place, holding it up to her face as though examining it. Across from her, Ephraim had produced a handkerchief. He dabbed at his forehead, his eyes never far from her exposed neckline. She smiled and placed the coin back in the tray, her fingers lingering over it. She let out a dramatic sigh. They are very beautiful, but I fear beyond my meagre means. I'm sorry to have wasted your time. The shopkeeper nodded sadly and reached for the tray. I understand, miss. You have nothing to apologize for. No harm has been done. Isabel plucked her hat from the countertop, curtsied and swept out of the shop in a flurry of petticoats. Goodbye, miss, called the shopkeeper. Good luck. Outside, the streets were busy. Crowds of people bustled past, pushing against each other like leaves in a fall wind. Here and there, little eddies formed as friends and acquaintances stopped to say hello. The press of humanity swirled around these impromptu greetings with a mixture of muttered curses and awkward strides. Collisions were inevitable, often little more than just a bump and vague apology, but shouted threats and violence were not uncommon. Isabel stepped daintily into the flow of human traffic, 
allowing herself to be carried by its current for a time. She passed shops and artisans, street performers and beggars. One particularly repellent specimen caught her eye, little more than a pile of rags and a begging bowl. It croaked out a call for arms in a bubbling voice and raised malformed stumps in supplication. Spare a coin, miss. She lifted her skirts and stepped around it, wrinkling her nose against the persistent stench. Presently she stopped, stepping to the side of the street and allowing the crowds to pass her by. Lifting her hand mirror, she pretended to fix an errant hair. She teased the edges of her glove, and the florin emerged from within the fabric and dropped neatly into her other hand. Careful to keep one eye on the crowds through her raised mirror, Isabel stared excitedly at the coin. It was a plain old thing, really. Its gold colour had faded over the centuries to nondescript yellow, and the carving of King Edward III was badly worn down. The year 1344 was stamped on the back. As she examined the coin, she was struck by a peculiarity. The motto was missing. All English coins of this era had a Latin benediction inscribed upon them, blessing the king and his rule. However, on this coin it was entirely absent. Isabel frowned. The missing inscription could mean one of two things. Either she had quite expertly stolen a worthless forgery, or the coin was an exceptionally rare mistake. She had heard of the so-called godless florin of England a few years past, but nothing from earlier periods. A thrill of excitement shivered down her spine at the thought of discovering and acquiring an even rarer coin. She would need to do some careful research before approaching any buyers. She slipped the coin inside her compact, snapping the lid shut and placing it carefully in her purse before stepping out into the street once again. Almost immediately, she collided with a young man, shabbily dressed and smelling of cheap gin, but possessed of just enough roguish charm to make her stop for a moment. He apologised profusely, stooping to pick up her purse from where it had fallen during the collision. Dusting it down, he handed it back to her and apologised again. Still distracted, thinking about the coin she'd taken, she didn't realise what the man was up to. Isabel had not gone more than a dozen steps before a sudden fear gripped her. She stopped in the middle of the street and frantically tore open her purse. Desperately, she rummaged through its contents. Her money and, more importantly, the compact were gone. She spun on her heel, glaring back into the throngs of people that now separated her from the thief. She was so focused on finding the young man, she never saw the carriage. The sounds of the fatal impact echoed out over the packed street. A cry of warning, a woman's scream cut short, the whinny of frantic horses, and the rending of wood. Franklin Pendy glanced over his shoulder to look. It seemed like that poor woman he had just lifted from had been hit by a carriage. Not a lucky day, he mused. He shrugged and continued on his way. The scrip in his pocket had an important meeting at the Bobtail Club, and he was damned if they were going to be late. He reached the corner of Artisan Street and fumbled in his pocket for the other item he had managed to snag. It was a lady's compact, not worth much in itself, but he was pretty sure Betsy would find it pleasing, if he could tear her away from Merriweather and his band of goons long enough to give it to her. He popped the clasp open, and a coin dropped out, 
Franklin's hand shot out, catching the falling coin before it hit the ground. One of the benefits of having a pickpocket's hands, he didn't tend to drop many things. The coin was old, not guild-issued, and probably worthless. Franklin was just about to flick it into the begging bowl of a nearby transient when something made him stop. Loose change, sir, burbled the beggar. Sorry, old chap, he chirped to the deformed tramp. Better luck next time, eh? He stuffed the coin deep into his trouser pocket and strode away, whistling merrily. Behind him, the vagabond moaned a liquid gurgle and sagged back against the wall. The Queen of Masks, announced the croupier as he flipped the river card onto the table. Franklin had a good poker face, one of the best in his own estimation, but he was struggling not to grin. Fate was with him tonight. In five games, he had so far not had to risk any sleight of hand. The antique coin he had lifted earlier in the day danced across his knuckles, flashing and glinting in the club's lights. Check, he said, rapping on the table with his hand. Across from him, Merriweather and one of his cronies exchanged a furtive look. They had been working together all night, trying to push him into a clumsy mistake. The coin danced another quick step across the back of his fingers. Bed ten, said the gruff pioneer to his left as he pushed a chip into the steadily growing pile in the centre of the table. Raise you ten, Merriweather's companion, a brutish thug with a pugilist's nose named Clem, tossed two more chips carelessly forward. Merriweather was staring intently at Franklin. Behind him, Betsy was admiring herself in her new compact. She stopped for a moment to wink at him. He allowed himself a tiny smile. Raise you fifty, said Merriweather in his bass rumble. Franklin raised an eyebrow as Merriweather carefully pushed his chips forward, his eyes never leaving Franklin's. Franklin smiled. Now that's a gentleman's bet, Merriweather. Must be a devil of a hand. Merriweather said nothing, his face a mask. Franklin plucked a pile of chips from his stack and placed them delicately in front of him. I'll see your fifty, he said. Betsy had produced a fan and was smiling at him from behind it. She winked again. And raise you fifty. Merriweather's cheeks flushed red and a hard line formed across his brow. Franklin flipped the coin across his knuckles and back again. The ghost of a smile danced on his lips. The pioneer took stock of his remaining chips. I call, he grumbled. Clem fidgeted with his cards nervously. Fold, he announced finally, tossing his cards down and reaching for his whiskey. Merriweather dropped five more chips onto the table. Crawl. The croupier reached out, piling all the chips together. Show him, gentlemen. The pioneer was first. He flipped his cards over to reveal a seven and a nine. With the two sevens in the flop, he had three. A good hand, but not one worth betting more than 200 scrip on. Merriweather's face split into a snaggletooth grin. Three queens, he rumbled, flipping over the pair in his hand. Betsy took a sharp breath, her eyes wide. 
Well, said Franklin, those are excellent hands, gentlemen. Excellent hands indeed. But as you can see, I have one of yours. He slowly flipped over his seven. And one of yours. With great relish, he revealed his queen. That gives me a full house. The coin flickered across his fingers. And the pot. The pioneer grunted and began gathering his few remaining chips. Across the table, Merriweather's face was white with fury. He stood up so sharply he almost knocked Betsy on her backside, and he glared down at Franklin. Come now, Merriweather, chuckled the pickpocket. Perhaps poker just isn't your game. He dragged the sizable pile of chips over to his side of the table with his free hand. Perhaps we could play something more suited to your intellect, like slapjack or snap. The bigger man shoved the table angrily, driving it into Franklin's chest. The impact was minimal, but it knocked the coin from his fingers. On instinct, his hand shot out to catch it. He missed by a fraction and looked on in horror as the ace, king, and queen he had hidden up his sleeve spilled onto the floor. A deadly silence fell over the table as the coin bounced and rolled away across the room. Now, gentlemen, stammered Franklin, I can explain. Elias Langford looked up from his empty glass. The poker table had erupted into a storm of violence. Some poor soul was taking the beating of his life, while that pretty girl with the fan screamed bloody murder. The meaty slap of fist on flesh made him wince and look away. He had seen enough cheats being educated to know how this was likely to end. He looked back just in time to see the victim being dragged outside by his three burly attackers, the largest pulling a tarnished cigar cutter from his pocket. I suppose my life could be worse, he thought as the screams began. I could be him. He turned his attention back to the almost empty bottle of gin on his table. It was becoming increasingly apparent that the answers he was seeking were not going to be found within after all. But still, he ought to keep looking just in case. Something small and hard plinked against his foot. Elias looked down. Through blurry eyes, he spied an odd yellow coin lying next to his foot. With the grace and dexterity of a qualified drunkard, he reached for it and his forehead hit the table with a resounding thump. He blinked, unsure of what had just happened. He tried again. This time his fingers scrabbled against the edges of the coin, unable to gain a purchase. With glacial perseverance, he slid off his chair. A second loud thump shook the table from beneath, and finally Elias emerged, gripping the coin in one hand and a handful of spilled poker chips in the other. It seemed his eternal quest for the truth would continue. Perhaps fate had smiled on him for once. He'd already went through the money he'd brought with him, but his good fortune would allow him to stay. I'm actually a very wealthy and influential man, Elias slurred at the waitress. Very highly placed in the guild, as a matter of fact. He was nodding profusely as he spoke, his glazed eyes fixed on some vague point in the middle distance. Of course you are, hun, replied the waitress as she plucked the empty bottles from the table. 
That's why you're always drinking in such fine establishments. Elias's unfocused gaze wheeled haphazardly around towards her. He blinked for a long moment, his mouth working soundlessly. Finally, he fixed her with a bleary stare. Although you know, he hiccuped quietly. I drink in this place to avoid the, the, the wife. Is that so? Yes, he crowed, suddenly animated. She doesn't understand me. I'm a deeply philosophical, philly possible, deeply thoughtful man. She's only with me for the money. He waved his arms about extravagantly, knocking the half-full bottle of gin off the table and spilling the remnants of his scrip onto the floor. The waitress tutted and fished the bottle off the ground, setting it back on Elias's table. He had an old-looking coin pinched between two fingers and was failing to focus his gaze on it. Take this coin, for example, he said to no one in particular. I'm no expert, but I'll wager it's special. Sure, honey, it's probably worth a governor's ransom. Why don't you move on and get it valued? I hear there's a shop on Artisan Street that deals in coins and such. You should head over there now before it shuts for the night. He glared at her, annoyed. I said special, not valuable. Though I expect she's valuable too. You sound just like the wife, the Darian, the Adaran, the witch. Suit yourself, sugar, but you'll need more than special coins if you want another gin. She turned on her heel and flounced away into the pub. Elias watched her go, mumbling about special coins and gin. He looked at the empty bottle on the table and frowned. He was sure he had some more scrip somewhere, at least enough for another drink before the long walk home. After the incident with the carriage and the young woman, he did not relish the conversation waiting for him when he finally arrived. Yes, he slurred. Another drink, definitely. He set the florin down carefully on the edge of the table and cast about for his remaining cash. Finally, he spied a couple of scrip winking up at him from the floorboards. He leaned forward, and his hand poured incompetently at the ground around the money. Inertia finally got the better of him, and he toppled forward off his chair. It wasn't long before a sonorous snore reverberated up from beneath the table. He lay there for some time, patrons and staff ignoring his recumbent form. He rolled over, his head nuzzling up against the leg of the table, and the volume of the snoring intensified. Somebody give him a kick, will you? said a stern voice from across the bar. His waitress sashayed over, giving the table a thump, hoping the sound and vibration would wake him up. As her hands hit the warped and liquor-stained wood, the florin bounced from its place and fell. Elias snorted as the coin disappeared into his mouth. Choked to death, you say? Asked Lady Dora Langford. In some dive bar in the slums? Well, that doesn't sound like my Elias. Are you sure it's him? She stood in the foyer of the Guild Enclave and peered at the man before her. He was short and slight of frame with an unhealthy grey pallor. The dark smudges under his eyes spoke to a lifetime of night work, 
and his crooked yellow teeth and sour breath told her all she needed to know about his thoughts on personal hygiene. Quite sure, replied the disconsolate guild bureaucrat. Well, you'll forgive me for not taking your word for it. I should very much like to see some proof before I sign any documents. The bureaucrat sighed heavily. Lord Elias was positively identified by Dr. McMorning during the autopsy, Lady Langford. Is the word of the Guild's medical examiner not enough for you? Lady Langford prickled, her piggy pink eyes bulging in their sockets and flames of anger sweeping up her ample cheeks. How dare you, she fumed. Do you know who I am? I've been to dinner with the governor's secretary no less than three times these past five years. I was personally invited to the governor-general's masquerade ball this season. I count the chief magistrate as a close personal friend. I shall have your hide for such insolence. The bureaucrat licked his thin lips nervously. He was certain this dumpy mid-level aristocrat would never follow through on her threats, but it was best to be careful nevertheless. Very well, he intoned. If you care to follow me to the morgue. A sliver of shadow detached from the gloom of the foyer and sidled over to Lady Langford, coalescing into physical form as it did so. Is this entirely necessary? It whispered. Why not simply sign the papers? The oaf is dead, is he not? Lady Langford wobbled after the guild officer, barely acknowledging her companion. If I'm going to declare my husband legally dead, I wish to make sure he actually is. I would rather not have to deal with a situation like last time. You remember the trouble we encountered, don't you? The figure nodded its head, the meagre light in the corridor reflecting from the elaborate mask it wore. Of course I do. Months of wrangling in the courts to declaim him as an imposter and all of it for nothing. I still say we should have tried to press the resurrectionist angle. The marshals were itching for a closer look at him. Never, bristled Lady Langford. I can't have the Langford name sullied with such gossip. Can you imagine what those harpies at the salon would say if such a thing were suggested? Her guide stopped briefly and looked back over his shoulder. I'm sorry, Lady Langford. Were you speaking to me? Of course not, she snapped. I was conversing with my dear friend. The figure at her side bowed slightly. His rich clothes and mask marked him as a guild lawyer. There was something odd about him, but asking questions would likely mean his job, so the bureaucrat shrugged and continued on his way. So we view the body, make sure it's him, sign the documents, and then claim the estate. Is that our course? It is, replied Lady Langford. Once I know for certain he is dead, I shall claim the fortune. And then, once a respectable time has passed, I shall begin my life anew. The Lady of Malifaux, with a lifestyle to match. Her otherworldly companion reached out and took one of Lady Langford's hands in his spidery grip. And then we shall marry. You'll take me as your husband. His whispery voice took on a whining, needy tone. You said we'd be together once Elias was gone. Lady Langford shook herself loose and glared at him imperiously. He quailed before her withering stare like a supplicant before a primordial goddess. This is neither the time nor the place to speak of such things, Hamilton. She turned away from him, lifting her numerous chins into the air. 
Wait for me outside. I shall be with you presently. Suitably chastised, he slunk away and faded into a shadow. They had reached a large metal door. The air here was noticeably cooler, their breath misting faintly before them. You should probably brace yourself, Lady Langford. The morgue is not for the weak of stomach. I believe I have had quite enough of your insolence for one day, young man. Get the bloody door open, or you'll be on a slab next to my recently departed husband. With the dexterity of a safe cracker, the guild officer spun the various levers and handles that festooned the door. A series of clicks and thunks accompanied his efforts, until a final loud clunk signalled completion. The great portal swung slowly open. A gust of frigid air rushed out from the room beyond. Despite herself, Lady Langford shivered. A chill deeper than mere cold air settled into her bones as the room beyond crept into view. Shadows of liquid black filled the morgue as Lady Langford stepped falteringly inside. A handful of gas lamps spluttered in the dark, their small illumination lost in the cavernous chamber. White tiles stained yellow-brown covered the walls and floor, giving everything an unwholesome sheen. Trolleys of surgical equipment and wheeled gurneys emerged from the gloom like icebergs in a sea of black. Three autopsy slabs squatted in the center of the room, their occupants covered by surgical sheets. Here and there, the sheets sported patches of damp, stained black in the darkness. Here we are then, announced Lady Langford's guide with a hint of ghoulish glee. Dora tottered up to the slabs. She had visibly paled in the last few moments, and her breath was coming in shallow rasps. Is this him? she asked. One of these three, certainly. Dr. McMorning isn't the most organized of souls, despite his brilliance. Let's take a look, shall we? The guild officer drew the first of the sheets back. Beneath, the body of a young woman lay cold and still. Her face and head had been smashed open, and a jigsaw of round wounds and rude stitching crisscrossed it. One of her eyes had been dislodged by the force of whatever struck her. The eyelid refused to close, exposing a hollow gouge. Lady Langford stifled a gasp and turned away. Well, this clearly isn't your late husband. Interesting wound pattern, though. A heavy club or maybe even a horse's hoof. Lady Langford rounded on her companion. Her venomous retort died on her lips as she saw the guild officer leaning close to the body, evidently fascinated by it. If you've quite finished, she stuttered. Oh, yes, he replied absently and covered the body once again. Let's see if he's under the second one. Lady Langford had moved to the foot of the slab and exposed one of the corpse's feet. She inspected the tag dangling from its toe. No, she said. This is a Franklin Pendy stabbed in a bar brawl. A bowl of neatly severed fingers lay next to the exposed foot. She shuddered and replaced the cloth. The guild officer grinned at her the poor light casting sharp, angular shadows across his sallow face. Then by a process of elimination, we can assume... He cast back the sheet covering the third body with a flourish. This is your husband. To Lady Langford's eyes, he looked even more small and pathetic than he had when he was alive. A neat Y-shape had been cut into his chest and stitched closed again. 
A second incision travelled up the length of his throat, ending just beneath the point of his chin. She looked at him for a long moment, almost as if she expected him to sit up and dash all her hopes and dreams. Finally, her features hardened, and she gazed across at her companion. Give me the paperwork, she said evenly. I shall sign it all. Where are his personal effects, his clothes and such? I shall be taking them with me when I leave. The guild officer bustled around the morgue, gathering the late Lord Langford's personal property, while Lady Langford scratched her name onto the forms he had given her. He was just examining a strange coin he had found with the rest of Elias's things when Lady Langford marched up to him. She thrust the signed paperwork into his hands and snatched the clothes, jewellery and other various items from him. What's that? she inquired, pointing at the coin. Means of death, apparently. He locked eyes with her. This is the coin he choked on. Then it belongs to me. She plucked the coin from his grasp and wobbled out of the morgue. The cab rumbled across the cobbled street, its pitiable suspension jostling the passenger to and fro. Inside, Lady Dora Langford hissed and banged her fist against the roof. Careful, you dolt! She screeched. She cursed her late husband again. It was his ineptitude that had forced her to take a hansom back to the house. If he had not crashed the family carriage earlier that day, she could have ridden in comfort and style. Another sharp jolt caused her to spill the pile of his belongings onto the cab floor. She swore again and started fumbling around near her feet. The clothes, pocket watch and silver cufflinks had no significant emotional value to her, but they were probably worth a handful of scrip, along with the rest of his rubbish. Her scrabblings were eventually rewarded by the retrieval of two ten-scrip poker chips for somewhere called the Bobtail Club and the curious yellow coin from the morgue. The coin caught her attention. It was certainly old and not legal tender here in Malifaux, but that did not mean it was worthless. She resolved to have it valued first thing in the morning. Perhaps Elias's murder weapon would have more value than mere sentimentality. The cab shook again, jerking the coin from her grasp. It spun out over the street and disappeared into the night. The beggar looked up as the cab rattled past, its occupant screeching like some deranged seabird. A peculiar disc of yellow gold spun in the begging bowl before him. As the beggar watched, it spun on its edge, slowly flattening out and resolving into an odd-looking coin. The coin shuddered to a halt, face down in the centre of the bowl. In the blackness of its hood, the beggar smiled a ragged split of gleaming white. Tails, it whispered in its thick gurgle, you lose. The tips of its malformed arms lengthened and split. Two gleaming crescents of lethal purpose emerged from the tears, flashing in the lamplight. The beggar slid to his feet. Tatty strips of stinking cloth sloughed from its body, exposing a nightmare of animate cloth and glimmering death below. Above the twisting smile, two empty voids, like windows into the abyss, stared out. A voluminous fog crept into the street, sheathing the creature as it loped and slithered after the vanishing cab.
Lady Dora Langford found dead, howled the paperboy. Torn to ribbons in her home, investigating officers baffled. Ephraim Harvey stopped on his way to work and bought a copy of the Malifaux record. The front page was emblazoned with the story the young hawker had been shouting about. He continued on, scanning the details as he walked. Ephraim had been alive for a very long time. His aching bones and failing eyesight were a testament to that. He had seen a great many things both wondrous and terrible in his time. However, the drop in editorial quality and rise of salacious content in recent copies of the record was really just too much. He walked on. His shop, Harvey's Antique Coins and Curios, was not far now, and on instinct he pushed his hand into his pocket, fishing for some loose change. He came up empty. Sorry, my good man, he said without taking his eyes from the paper. It would seem I'm all out today. He came to a stop, glancing over the top of his newspaper. I shall have to give you double tomorrow. The bedraggled and malformed beggar he had been expecting to see was gone. The battered bowl he used to collect handouts sat in its usual spot, but of the poor unfortunate there was no sign. Ephraim looked up and down the street. This early in the day, the city was just coming to life. Traders, merchants and errand boys scurried back and forth, preparing for the crowds to come. A squad of guild guards escorting a rather bloody and inebriated man stomped past, but he could not see the beggar anywhere. Something yellow and metallic glinted in the begging bowl, catching Ephraim's eye. He crouched on protesting knees to get a closer look. Well, I never he whispered, reaching out with one palsied hand. He picked up the florin from its resting place and marvelled at it for a moment. I was wondering where you had gone to. He chuckled. With considerable effort, he stood up and drew out his keys, careful to keep one eye on the florin. You're back much earlier than last time. I wonder what mischief you've been up to. He unlocked the door to his shop and pushed it open. Now, come inside and tell me all about it. That's it for another instalment of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure.